0: of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. That's I'm Shane Garrettson And I'm Cal Vandegrift. And today we have a special guest from a fellow podcast, Retail Pharmacy, Dr. Mitch Lee. How you doing, Dr. Lee? Saying Cal. How you guys doing, man? It's excited to be here. We are really excited to have you here. <laughs> you told me
1: before we uh, recorded that I'm your first guest. Is that right? You are our, our first official guest on the podcast. Oh my gosh. I am. I'm honored. I haven't interviewed a lot of people myself. I've done like five or six, but I remember my first one and I was like, oh my God. You know, I was really nervous. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're in that boat now
2: <laughs>
1: i'd say so yeah uh, but yeah thanks for having me on y'all i'm really excited
0: this is really thrilling we've listened to your show i really like your show i think thanks, you get man. into like the nitty-gritty stuff about community pharmacy
1: yeah absolutely so yeah just a little bit of background i about two years ago started a podcast called retail pharmacy i've been working in retail for like 15 16 years and realized that it's just like there's, there's way too many ridiculous stories that we have from retail pharmacy, the people, the questions we get asked, the things that happen there that it's like, you want to share this stuff. Like I would get home and I would share it with my wife and she'd be mm-hmm. like, oh man, that's so weird. But the the idea of if someone says something really off the wall and they walk away, the first thing you do is turn your coworker and be like, can you believe I just said that? That's crazy, <laughs> right? And so I realized that the idea of knowing you're not alone in feeling that it's like what what just happened is this real life you know and sharing those stories was something that i really wanted to do and
0: and it's been a lot of fun so far i think that's exceptional i think that's a voice that we definitely need in the in the maelstrom of media right now there's not a lot of people talking about what it's like to actually be a pharmacist especially in in retail big time and i realized pretty
1: early on especially with people sending in cuz a lot of the driving force for the show are people sending in their patients and their experiences and things like that and then i realized pretty quickly how negative it could get really quickly because mm-hmm. you know if you talk to certain people who have work in retail pharmacy forever they're always telling people who want to go to pharmacy school well, don't do it you know it's awful and i hate my job and you know they're just working for the paycheck and so it could get that way pretty easily we could just talk about how awful patients are and everything sucks all the time but i was trying to use this in a way to like all right things do kind of suck sometimes but we can try and flip it and see the positive too
0: yeah. And I think you've developed a really good community around your show as well. Cause a lot of people, they share these similar experiences. Cause I've, I've worked in retail for six years now. Oh, and, okay. And listening to your podcast, I was like, Hey, that's happened to me. <laughs> that's that's a lot exactly of the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: The, it's funny too, because the stuff that we talk about, it's, it's amazing. It doesn't matter what company you work for or what part of the world you're in. People are like, yeah, that's happened to me all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing for me to just hear you both talk about this. Cause I'm like, when it comes to retail pharmacy, I'm just like, I have no idea where you're coming from. Like, I have no <laughs> pharmacy experience. I can only just imagine what y'all are even
0: going through. It's uh, he's starting his uh, his first rotation is actually tomorrow. Yeah. No, dude, mm. you're starting.
1: Oh my gosh, are you
0: nervous? I'm a little bit nervous. I I'm, can't lie about
1: that one. I'm a little bit nervous. So sorry. So wait a second. Your first taste of retail pharmacy is tomorrow. It is like tomorrow. ever. That's <laughs> man. That's crazy, dude. That's crazy. I don't.
2: I don't know. <laughs> Do me a favor.
1: At the end of the, at the end of your first day, like send me like a message on Twitter. Let me know how it went, whatever. I'll share it on my show. Cause like the a
2: person's first day in retail, that's very special. It's very yeah.
1: interesting. I, I, I,
2: ju- I came into pharmacy school and I was like, I was kind of like how you just described it. You know, I only heard the horror stories of retail. So I was like, yeah. I don't know if I want to go down that path. You know, I was, yeah. I was looking more towards hospital, but I don't know. Since this, since this whole first year of pharmacy, I've started to reconsider my
0: options.
1: I don't know. Venture yeah. down that path. Don't let them scare you off too much. Retail's not so bad. This is yeah. interesting.
0: <laughs> it gets definitely very interesting, but it's really rewarding at the same time, at least for me. It's it's about the building the foundations of relationships and trust with patients. That that's what that's what I get yeah.
1: I, I see the I see where they're coming from and wanting to do, but from what I've heard, the metrics are bad. But um, hopefully, they won't make Cal. Hopefully, they won't make you do too many of the metrics part. Oh, uh, I'm sure. Yeah.
2: I- <laughs> I'm going to do all the boring
1: stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, or they're going to throw that all on the intern and just like put you in a
0: dark corner and you have to do all these calls.
2: That's what I'm envisioning, unfortunately.
0: One of the other things, though, about what's great about this shared community around just talking about working as a a pharmacist is probably people are experiencing these changes around COVID simultaneously because it's sweeping across the whole country and everybody's going into this quarantine. And what we want to talk about a little bit today is what's going to happen after COVID, if we even see after COVID. I I think we will in a a year, maybe more. It's going to diminish, but I think the world is definitely going to be going to be changing. Um, Over the past few months, and certainly for the foreseeable future, discussions and speculations have been ongoing as to what will actually become of the post COVID world. We've seen these massive shifts to healthcare, politics, and economics. Those will no doubt follow in the wake of this recent pandemic, and they've been the topic of a lot of conjecture from major news networks to social media. And everybody is talking about the big topics, but what about the smaller ramifications? That's what I want us to talk about today. I don't want us to belabor the previously mentioned topics of the politics and the economics. think uh, we should explore some of the other avenues into how the world is going to change after COVID-19.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be really obvious to see the really large changes on those big fronts, uh, economics and political and all that stuff. But getting on a personal level with people and discussing the small, small, very small changes, whether it be entertainment, pharmacy, like retail pharmacy, whatever, um, that's going to be where a lot of people are going to say like, oh, okay, now I can kind of tune in. Because you know, you you think about it from a global point of view, from a large aspect standpoint, it's like, okay, like, I understand how this is changing things. But you know, People want to see know how is it affecting my life? How is it changing my life? And just and that kind of discussion of like how this can affect little small like day to day aspects, small things is a big deal. Yeah.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how people react to to science in general. After the Spanish flu, there was a big surge in an, an anti-science sentiment, and this was sort of around the time that that homeopathy and naturopathy got really really big. In fact statement in the New York Times was published saying science has failed to guard us. And Benedict Lust, one of the fathers of naturopathy, called germ theory into question. Mm. And germ theory had been like solidified and ratified at this point for like almost a 100 years. Maybe not quite that long, like 60 years. When was germ theory? We, we were talked just, about this we on were our just last episode, <laughs> and I never fact-checked it. It was we, like the mid to late 1800s. Yeah. But at this point, it was already like a solid theory, and people were just now like, maybe germs aren't real. Oh, yeah. And even even now with social media and stuff, we see people talking about how COVID nineteen is fake. Oh gosh, I've seen that. That's yeah.
1: You have a conspiracy theorists all over the place. But
0: so I was I
1: was reading about that and you know, a lot of the information that I found was the the lack of acceptance of science in the medical field before the Spanish flu. So there was probably the germ theory going on, but there wasn't this scientific presence in the medical field before because people who were doctors at that time, you didn't have to take chemistry courses, biology courses, things like that. You just had to pass couple courses be able to afford medical school and then all of a sudden you're a doctor so there wasn't a lot before which may have led into like they're not they're being like maybe feeling like it failed them
2: afterwards it's kind of interesting you mentioned that so i'm kind of a dork when it comes to like uh, u.s presidential history okay and i it was 1881 james garfield was president and then he got shot yeah. by an anarchist and i don't know if you know this story but he didn't die from the initial wound he died from sepsis after the fact several months later oh. and and one of the reasons he died was because his doctor, ironically, his name was Dr. Bliss. And, and he, 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 he just was a terrible doctor. And this was 1881, well after germ theory was already discovered. Sure. It's, it's just great. I mean, I think that's largely why the term ignorance is bliss is so... I think that was what accelerated that term. I think largely ran in newspapers. And that's like yeah. 1881.
0: That's two idioms that come from, from bad doctors who yeah. treated presidents. The Dr. Mudd who treated um, John Wilkes Booth. Your name is Mudd that idiom and then dr bliss like, oh, oh you guys
1: are blowing my mind right now i gotcha <laughs> yeah. all right learning some stuff i knew i would learn a lot today did you
0: guys know that we resurrected the spanish flu and it is at a, a level four biohazard lab which doesn't mean anything to me maybe it means something to you but it's at a level four biohazard lab in atlanta georgia <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: What do you mean res- no, I, <laughs> you they, they brought,
1: yeah they, they brought it back to life to study it i guess is the, yeah. the idea um 2005 uh so, okay, I'm going to be honest with you guys. The fr- when I read that, because I read that before we aired, the- before I was getting ready for this episode, I was reading about the Spanish flu, and I was like, okay, they resurrected the Spanish flu in a lab, and this is exactly how movies like Jurassic Park start, right? Yeah. So They're right. going to start something in a lab, and it's going to like bust out of the tube, and it's just going to, you know, and you're going to have like two dudes in white coats to blame for this like mass, you know, second resurgence of the Spanish flu, <laughs> but uh, but i uh, yeah to answer your question yes i did read about that and um yeah it's a little n- it's a little nerve-wracking that it still exists somewhere even if it's in a controlled environment but
0: <laughs> yeah
1: uh, i guess it's good they're studying it it is really interesting i will say this the idea of anti-science sentiment i guess after the spanish flu and being like all right we're gonna go to homeopathy like this is all wrong you failed us whatever and then now like looking at COVID how everyone is just like overly embracing the, the germ theory. So like germs are the enemy and everyone's got to sanitize everything. And let's just like freak out over every single germ that we can. I mean, I think a lot of people are doing that anyway, especially like the people who have their, I don't have kids, but if you have kids and you're constantly like sanitizing everything and you're not letting them like build up their own immune system. Mm. Um, if there was anti-science sentiment after the Spanish flu right now, and especially post covid world whenever that is there's going to be probably the reverse like the opposite you think there will be a profound embracing of science after this unless we're talking about anti-vaxxers everyone's embraced kind of like (laughs) the vaccines about like you know everyone's embraced like all right germs exist all right you know we need to kill the germs and and so everyone's embracing the idea now which before wasn't a thing and now they're embracing it and then with, with COVID coming along, that was one of the things that I was personally feeling like will be a takeaway from a COVID that will have ripple effects way long, you know, into decades from now. will be people's understanding of transmission of diseases mm-hmm. that they didn't really get before, the whole so, uh, social distancing, face masks, over-sanitization of everything. That's going to stick in people's minds for a really long time, I think. So, say COVID goes away in six months, say it's completely gone. Well, the next flu season that comes around, what are people going to do? The government's not going to say, "Hey, social distance for the flu season," but they people are going to start to do that. They're going to have COVID on their mind. Oh, I remember mm-hmm. six months ago, COVID, and my gosh, if this is a similar, a similar animal like a virus, we need to do the same thing. That's going to keep going and going and going, I think.
0: Man, I, that's a really positive outlook, and I can only hope that that is what it's actually going to be like. So I, I guess that makes a lot more sense, though, with that perspective, that since we have a stronger foundation of learning more about bacteria and viruses over the past 50 to 60 years, that hopefully the outcome would be completely reverse as to what came it to pass after the Spanish flu. Since we've already got that underpinning of small understanding of virology i think so i think i think so i I hope it's
1: not like embracing it too much i mean if we see say the next flu season we see people taking more steps to uh, stop the spread of germs Uh, i remember when when code first got started i was so frustrated because we had like eight cases in the u.s but everyone was freaking out buying face masks and hand sanitizer and i was like you guys what are you doing why why aren't you doing this every single year for the flu like what's wrong Mm -hmm. with you um, and then, of course, I didn't realize how large it was going to be. Say that works, you happen next flu season. That's great. You know, that's really good to, to stop the spread of flu. Maybe the flu numbers will go down. But there is something to be said, and I hope it doesn't go this way, but just over sanitization, which I'm sure we'll get to this maybe, but like superbugs, things like that people freaking out way too much so they are getting rid of their natural ways for their body to fight off diseases
0: yeah and that's another really good point like what kind of effects could this over sanitization not only have on the bacteria and stuff themselves but what's it going to do to our own bodies because studies have shown that kids who play in the dirt have stronger immune systems Heck than yeah. kids who don't play in the dirt
1: oh and uh, fun fact this is for you cal so starting tomorrow your immune system will begin to build my friend because we work in <laughs> Working in retail pharmacy and maybe in hospitals if you're going to see patients in rooms and stuff, but retail pharmacy, you're getting that constant dose of patients coming in. You guys, I'm 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 gonna try and find some wood to knock on here so I don't make myself sick, but I get I get a cold maybe like every eighteen months and that's it. And like I think I think hundred percent of it is I mean, I I run a lot and I try to hydrate as much as I can, but but I think it's all retail pharmacy. So it, it definitely builds it up for us, I think, which is good.
2: See, that's interesting. Like I both of my parents growing up worked at the same hospital. So we would, I would frequently go visit them and sometimes I'd go in their ICUs and, and I'd see some of the sick patients. And it's, it's kind of interesting you bring that up because I was probably introduced to some pretty bad, like I was probably introduced <laughs> to MRSA way before someone should be introduced to MRSA. So I'm hoping I'm already at that point, yeah. but I, I don't know.
1: They were helping you. They didn't even realize it. They were just yeah. bringing home little traces of MRSA and building yeah. up your immune system.
2: I know, yeah. I probably have some MRSA right now still in my nasal passages, <laughs> just from the last time <laughs> I went.
0: Isn't that already like normal? One in every three people have MRSA on them. I bet, them.
2: if you know swab, one but in three people. It's not an infection,
0: it's just you just there, have just them chill in there. I bet, yeah. yeah, especially. And all the prescribers want to
1: give me piercing for it. It's like, here, you know, make sure you swab the nasal passages. Mm.
2: <laughs> I bet if you did a COVID-19 swab of people, who work in hospitals right now, I bet the majority would be in a similar situation where they might actually have (laughs) Mm, a little bit of COVID on the nasal swab.
0: There was something that I only read about really briefly and I didn't understand it. And hopefully we'll learn about it when we do infectious diseases, but there's an infection threshold. The virus or bacteria has to hit a certain quantity depending on your susceptibility to infection before it becomes infectious. A single virion might not do anything to you, it has to have mm. like a certain certain threshold to be met.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes me think of one of the few things I remember from pharmacy school and infectious disease.
0: I do remember this uh, little nugget
1: of knowledge. I know that antibiotics, when you take antibiotics, they don't actually kill all the infection. All they do is lower it to a threshold that allows your body to take over and take care of the rest. Oh, which that's I was, pretty Yeah. Hmm. You guys heard the theory that COVID is going to be like a yearly thing like the flu it'll come up in a season and then we get the vaccine and it'll come back. You guys heard that yet? I mean everyone's speculating everything but like that would be insane, right? We have a flu season and then you have a COVID season and then it goes away and then it's all cyclical.
0: That'd be terrible.
2: I don't know which one would be worse. Say if it was like opposite like we did yellow fever in our last episode if yeah. like they were in the summer and then yeah, if we had imagine we had a summer COVID and then a winter flu. I don't which would
1: yeah, you're right. It would be uh, summer. Yeah, because it would be a summer, springtime, summer COVID if it was uh,
2: cyclical. That's right. I, I yeah. can't imagine which one would be worse if it both happened at the same time. Like, say it both happened
0: in uh, winter, or like if you every six months you got to deal with that. Well, the mortality rate would be a lot higher if you had like a comorbid, like big two infections. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> be big. More time. noticeable at least. Yikes. Yeah. At least we don't have the Spanish flu coming around every. Yeah. <laughs> every year, that'd be the worst. Maybe we shouldn't have doxed them that they're in that lab in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> Keep, it, keep up the good work, guys. If you're listening, keep up the good yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsor. So another thing that I think is going to be hopefully not as dramatic of an effect is the, the cultural impact that COVID is having. We yeah. haven't seen the release of, of a lot of music, except for Billie Eilish, who's releasing a new song. <laughs> Wait, has it been released yet? No. No, she just tweeted about it. Yeah, yeah she like, tweeted that she like wrote a whole song or something in quarantine. Mm-hmm. But other musicians, like my favorite band, The Glass Animals... Ah. Actually, he's been producing more music too, so that's not a good example yeah. either.
2: he was in quarantine. Yeah, he was, he was doing music.
0: quarantine covers.
2: That was before the protests and the riots. Though. Yeah, but if, think...
0: you, if you think about like other, other movies and other shows and other musicians, nobody's creating art right now. Sure. And I think the cultural impact is going to be pretty big here. The cultural impact... After the Spanish flu was absolutely devastating. There's this one island nation called Vanuatu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but this was considered the most linguistically diverse country in the world at the time, and it was actually home to over 150 local languages, and the island experienced a 90% mortality rate. That's insane. They got just almost completely wiped out, and it's estimated that 20 of those languages are completely lost forever along with their distinctive cultures. I mean, it kind of makes sense to me because if you look
1: at that island on a map, I think it's like pretty small, and so like where are you gonna go? You know what I mean? Like they were just giving it to each other on the island, and so yeah. it's it's horrible and it's sad. And I the language thing, I I didn't know it was so uh, lingually diverse. Ugh, that's I mean, you think about the equivalent of that today. I mean, I can't imagine COVID. Like wiping out languages, but it's a part of the Spanish flu that is, I think, kind of forgotten. People even remember a lot about the Spanish flu at all, which I didn't. I mean, I had to look it up to remember a lot about the details about the Spanish flu itself. But when you look about that specific island in that country, which I'm, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Um, if you look at that specific island and see that that is that is something to really look at and and just it it, it magnifies the effects of how devastating that was not only globally but if you look at a civic populations and people and be like wow that was 90 percent." that's just insane
2: it's terrifying i'm thinking more like so this this more modern reference but just right now if if you wanted to say go to the vacation say in the cayman islands the cayman islands right now is being very selective they were doing it well before covid even came out but they were so selective there's a 10 year waiting list right now to go to the cayman islands because it's just it's, it's so overbooked and just imagine if they were only allowing 50 percent capacity To go to the Cayman Islands.
1: You guys talk among yourselves. I'm gonna get on my phone here and get on that waiting list because I want to go to the (laughs) Cayman in the next ten years. (laughs) Ten years? Come on. But I will say one thing that you were talking about not producing art. That I 100% agree. My wife and I were talking about our favorite shows. How there's going to be this gap. Like right now, shows are still coming out because they were filmed right before all this went down. Yeah. And they're doing. You know, you can you can edit and do all that stuff in quarantine and, and release shows. I think there's going to be this gap of really good streaming television shows and movies where right now, if they're filming, they were going to come out, you know, six months from now, there's nothing, there's going to be kind of like nothing coming out really. Where I feel like music, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I haven't really come up with, my, with my, my own rap album yet or anything, but uh, music and, and um, artists like painters and things like that, the, the, to an extent you can do a lot of that stuff in quarantine, uh for me specifically and maybe it's just cuz I watch a ton of Netflix I'm like man this is really going to have an impact on our entertainment world worth uh, tv and movies
2: yeah. I'm I'm worried more about like stand up comedy because I I'm I'm like a big stand up comedy guy if I'm watching something on Netflix it's probably going to be stand up comedy uh, okay. and and I, I was watching an interview about um I forget it was, it was some comedian I think it was I don't I don't remember his name but it was on it was on the Pat McAfee show and he was talking to this he was talking to this um this comedian and he was just talking about he's just writing jokes. I mean he's got like three hours of material. He can't do anything with it because he
1: ready yeah. for all it to go away so he can like have three hours.
2: Like, he's yeah, he's gonna have like three specials just posted immediately <laughs> on Netflix. I mean, like that's, that's crazy. crazy. Who are your favorite well, comedians? Oh, I am a big Dave Chappelle guy. Oh I okay. love Dave Chappelle. He is he's he's number one.
0: My favorite stand up comedian is my brother Alex Gerritsen, small time comic in a, in new york city actually and uh, he's, he's been, been hit. hit he's been hit really hard he hasn't been able to do shows in like s- i probably since like december or even earlier it's crazy that's um, nuts
1: man it's, it's interesting how each city's doing it differently i mean uh i can imagine new york city's just completely totally locked down i imagine so yeah if you're just like a stand-up comic or something there's nothing i mean nashville's opening in stages where like in or phases, phases or stages, but we're like in phase two right now. So mm-hmm. restaurants are starting to do like half capacity right now. Yeah. But if you're in New York and that's your jam, I,
2: that sucks, man. It's interesting you brought that up. I actually, I heard something on the radio a couple days ago where they're in South Carolina and they're the same. They're in phase two. We're in phase two in North Carolina too. And they, it's, it's really crazy because in South Carolina, one of these restaurants is actually using like actual blow up dolls to put them in every other booth. And that's just their way to keep it at 50% capacity. Oh, so they- <laughs> <laughs> they're just putting like four blow up dolls in a booth. Like wow. stand-ins, man,
1: <laughs> those poor blow up dolls, are gonna get COVID for sure. I know,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> they gotta stay at the restaurant all day. I mean, they get, they're bound to get it at some point. Yeah, no one's sanitizing the blow up dolls. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd want to. I don't no. think I want to say those things.
0: So speaking of stand-up comedians, well, not just stand-up comedians, but the deficit that we're going to see to movies and shows, yeah. there's also been like a weird surge, really interesting surge to online releases. I don't know if you've heard about the the recent hit masterpiece, Trolls 2 <laughs> World Tour. I think I've heard something about that, yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to definitely be seeing some, some Trolls content at the Oscars, but <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. Uh, but it was... Uh, they they had to do the shift like at the last minute from regular theater releases to uh, exclusively online. and it still made like a, a huge huge amount of money and I think that that actually made more than they originally anticipated. I think it made like 112 million. that's what right? I heard
2: is 112 million wow. just
0: online releases and that means, that distribution costs were lower, yeah. and I think advertising costs were different too. Because if they didn't have to distribute it to theaters, then that's probably like a big savings.
2: The also thing, the thing about Trolls too that they did was they didn't just release it on VOD on video on demand. They also released it to a lot of streaming networks too. So it wasn't just like you had, you could buy it for whatever they were charging.
0: Sixteen bucks to watch yeah. the movie. Thank you for explaining what the acronym VOD stood <laughs> for. I don't know if anyone I'm not familiar with it, but <laughs> it
2: was
1: gonna go right over my head, but I wasn't gonna say anything.
0: <laughs> but I, th- I think that and like there's been a couple other movies that have come out that have gone straight to online releases that I, I think are, yeah. are still making a ton of money and then I'm really excited about this movie coming out Friday right yeah this the June The King 12th. of Staten Island have you heard of it Staten Island The King of Staten Island King of Staten Island, of Staten Island. No, what's it about it's about it's um, Pete Davidson Pete Davidson the stand-up comedian
1: oh for real
0: yeah and it's I think it's just about uh, how he wants to be like a tat. his character wants to be a tattoo artist and he's dealing with the loss of his his father in 9/11 and i think it's going to be really cathartic for Pete Davidson cuz he actually, actually did lose his father yes. in 9/11 so and the movie looks hilarious anyway i and want to watch it it's it's a series you said a movie not a series it's a movie yeah it's a movie okay okay, okay. that's going to be good and it's judd apatow too yeah so it's oh, got like a man. bunch of bunch of big names attached to it and it's going to be like an exclusively on online release so it'll be really interesting to see how this stacks up to other movies like other Judd Apatow movies, too. I know.
2: I know the High Note was the like the biggest current movie that's out right now, and I bet it, that'll be just a fraction of what that movie makes because there's a lot of big names in in this Pete Davidson. I mean, you got Bill Burr and Steve Buscemi in it too. It's just, it's gonna be a big movie.
1: Can't really lose with Judd Apatow yeah. and Pete Davidson's, Yeah, he's that's gonna be good. I didn't. I need to watch a trailer for that. But did you guys know that a movie cannot be up for an Oscar if it wasn't in a theater for at least a week? they are going to have to change well, yeah. that that's going to be yeah. an exception <laughs> yeah. i read that and i was like "That's got to be changed but you know you think about okay so talking about like movies and i think in independent movie theaters will be like that's going to go away not the idea of going to the movies but going to a movie theater that's independently owned and operated and all it is is just concession stands a comfy chair and a big screen that's it that's i think that's going to be a thing of the past personally mm-hmm. especially i mean the online releases of course Say you have like a big giant come in and buy all these movie theaters, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, whatever. And they incorporate, let's say Amazon did it. So let's say Amazon bought it. So you're going to go to the movies and there's going to be Whole Foods. Save your your regular popcorn and stuff like that, it's going to be Whole Foods stuff. It's going to be Amazon lockers out there. It's going to be part of your Amazon Prime membership. You, You know, they add an extra $50 a year. You can go to the movies all you want. Because the idea of going to the movies, I think leaving your house to go watch a movie, I think is going to be still around, like still a thing, because people have to get out of their house. If they want to, they, they can also maybe have the option to watch the movie at home, but, but it'll be like a different kind of experience. There might be different things in the lobby. If Apple were to buy it and you go to an Apple store and, and, and watch a movie like it's, it's, that Apple has on their streaming service and there's iPads around and all this stuff, like there's different ways it can be done. But yeah, the whole independent thing. Let's go to the movies, watch a movie, and just come home, and all you did was eat popcorn and just watch it on a big screen TV, which you have in your house anyway. That might that might be gone.
2: I, I remember. I, I just had to look it up. By the way, it was Brian Callen who was the stand up comedian that I was talking about. And Brian Callen, in his interview, brought this up that the only way he's currently able to do shows is to do it at at uh, drive through theaters, where they put a stage. Oh in. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah. And I've heard I've heard a few things where people. Um, like at church, people aren't going into church. They're actually just driving to the parking lots and listening to the church radio. Yep, I've heard so concerts.
1: Yeah, concerts are doing that now. Some uh, artists are performing and you drive up and listen.
2: Drive in theaters was really a dying reading. It's coming back. This might be the thing that keeps oh, driving wow. theaters. It could, it could. It's if I own a drive in theater,
0: I would, I mean, it's COVID's awful, but I'd be like, okay, here we go. Here comes my business. You know what, I mean? yeah. what if this was all just like a ploy by the drive-in theater conglomerate. Mm, they true. planted the seeds of, of Is there, Is there a chain drive-in theater? Maybe it's like, that's like this big underground syndicate. Careful, Shane.
1: If you release this
0: episode, you're right. They're going to come after you, bro. <laughs> I'm ready to fight the syndicate. The drive-in theater syndicate. <laughs> Take them all down. Yeah. But what you were saying about, like, Apple and Amazon buying theaters, I think that's really plausible, especially with how massive Amazon's becoming, how just omnipresent, like... I feel like Jeff Bezos is constantly watching me, just all the time. So I he knows exactly what you like. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: There's only one way to be a hundred billion, hundred billion, you know, wealth. The wealthiest uh, man. The of wealthiest, all time wealthiest ever. man is is by far, and the only way is you're sitting at home at an office, looking at 20 just laptops and desktops and and monitors, just Super seeing. Villain. Yeah. I bet he knows. Is I bet he knows what Trump here. is watching right now.
1: He's listening to us right now. Um, you guys heard that he could, there, there was a stat that he could like end world hunger with the amount of money he has. And he's just like not doing it. And everyone's like, come on, man. You can like actually stop a global crisis. Just do it, Jeff. Come on. Yeah. Come on, man. Can I call you you're, Jeff? Yeah, you're listening.
0: Do- or is it Dr. Jeff? Jeff? Dr. <laughs> Jeff. Mr. Bezos.
2: Dr. Jeff, actually.
0: Yeah, that's right. Amazon movie theaters. That would be that would be something. And that, that would be one of the only ways that I, that I could fathom that they would stay alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: if I was an independent owner of a movie theater, I would be sweating right now, big time. I mean, they're already... Um, uh, uh, I'm already blanking on the name of like the largest chain of movie theaters. I in think the it's
2: AMC. 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 Uh, yes,
1: they they lost money last year. They're, it's not looking good, so they they're, they're going to have to get bought out for sure. And it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think it's it's sad for them, obviously, but as a society, we move forward, and for us, that's obviously going to bleed into entertainment world. We're going to move forward, and things are going to be different, and it's going to be very detailed to the user, very specific to the user, and it's going to be freaking awesome, probably.
2: It's just like. In 2010, I'm sure movies were booming because you had 3D. They just came out with IMAX. Like these were like these really innovative things. Transformers si- was big. Well, <laughs> Transformers <laughs> yes. three just came out.
1: Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, never forget. <laughs> never forget.
2: But like since then, what have movie theaters done other than give you more comfortable places to sit? Oh, the reclining seats. Yeah. Oh, those are so nice. Oh, but you're still watching IMAX. Not a lot of people watch 3D anymore. So and like when you I. I I watched a movie in a regular movie theater and it's like, I, I should have just watched this at it's home. It's too dark. I can't see it. Yeah, it's, it's just not the same.
1: It's funny because they're, they're doing stuff. They're trying. Like you go to the movie theaters now and you got the you know, you know got the adult beverages now. You got the bar there. You got the movie theaters that are walking up and serving you food in your chair. Like you said, the recliners and stuff like that. So a lot of like, it's, again, uh, just another example of maybe they were seeing a downward trend. It's like, all right, y'all, we got to beef this up. And of course it, it increases user experience. That's a lot of fun. It's been great um now we got to go to the next stage it's going to be something else it's going to be completely different um which means our kids are going to be all only know that world we're gonna be like hey guys you there was a time by the way there was a time when and movies didn't just come straight to your tv when they came out there was you had to go somewhere to this building and you had to pay like a lot of money at the time to watch a movie and you'd watch it and then you just come home and it's like, what? I'm what aging is, myself, it's... but I do, I do remember going to the movies after, like on Sundays when it was like the, pri- the, the lower price and I could get them for like
0: four bucks. Oh, wow, that's crazy. I-
2: I like how they offer they offer you discounts now and like these these like Fandango things. It's like they're it's like they're trying to think that they're doing a favor for you, but you're still actually wind up paying eighty dollars for four people to go see a movie. Oh God. Now
1: like, you are unless you're the guy who's um, and not there's anything wrong with this, but if you're the guy who's forty years old, you're not married, you're like a sci fi geek, and you're going to the movies like twice a week. It's awesome, but you're right, you end up paying more, and that's just an example of, of what I was talking about, like they're trying to do things to all right let's keep this industry alive let's keep it going and and enhance things and um it's been
0: great but yeah it's it's probably time to move on i honestly wouldn't be upset if i never went to a movie theater again
2: agreed i think i think star wars was the last one i went to and i i saw it twice once in imax and then that was the one movie i saw in a regular movie you paid to see that
0: twice i wish i could get back <laughs> the two hours and Fifteen dollars that I spent to see it once. Look, I know we're we're probably this is way off topic, but I thought I thought the
2: fight with the emperor. I thought that oh, was man. I'm Talk about
0: Star Wars. <laughs> that, was <laughs> that was badass. That was
1: badass. It's all I'm the, These hot movie takes you're going to either increase or drastically decrease your listening audience. People who agree. <laughs> I heard Star Wars fans. They're like, they're pretty hardcore in their beliefs. Yeah, whether we they are. like it or don't. Yeah. Uh, the last movie I went and saw in a the theater probably Joker. Now I will say that uh I, we i should say this you know we're, I, I don't want to i don't want to say like i'm bashing me theaters. you go to, you go there and you watch the movie and obviously the sound and the it is an experience like it's better obviously than watching joker in my living room so there is something to be said about that i think you're there are there have been some movies that have come out that i'm like okay i probably should have seen that in the theater so hopefully they're not gone for good but um yeah, the whole 3D thing, by the way. You mentioned 3D. I only saw one movie in 3D, which is Avatar, and it was mm. really strange.
2: Yeah. that's really strange. That's a good one, though. Avatar? I, I think I saw the first SpongeBob movie because they were just experimenting. Three, I was like five years <laughs> old. The SpongeBob movie. Yeah. And they, I went to, we went to the movie theaters, and there was like the first ever 3D I ever watched. And I remember just 30 minutes in, I had to go to the bathroom and throw up because my Ew. five-year-old eyes couldn't <laughs> take the 3D oh now if so think about people wanting to do 3d now with
1: covid there's no way you have yeah the reusable glasses or whatever you'd have to oh, dispose yeah. of them or use some sort of app on your phone that or virtual reality we haven't talked about that you go vr on movies That'd be yeah. a whole different experience
2: see vr is just cool. so expensive though it's like yeah. twelve hundred dollars you have expensive. to dedicate yeah. a whole room to it it's like
0: yeah yeah, yeah. That's i true. don't know i think that we've kind of saturated the uh The movie idea, which is I think we're all (laughs) we're all really into movies. I'm super into movies. So let's start with this next topic. I think we can jump into the uh, antimicrobial stewardship topic. I'm going to start this with a with a question for our listeners and for you, Mitch. How often do you see antibiotics that are prescribed for someone who never comes and picks it up? Or They'll send in something like amoxicillin, and then three days later when the culture comes back, they'll send in something else like Keflex. The resending
1: thing for a culture uh, that comes back, that doesn't happen very often. I I love when that happens because you're obviously getting a more specific antibiotic, more accurate antibiotic for the infection. Mm -hmm. The amount of antibiotics that we put back on our shelves, uh, we probably do, I don't know, one a day, one or two a day.
0: Which wow, is, that's a pretty high number.
1: Which is probably too much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that might be too high. My my pharmacy staff that might probably listen to this episode, they're going to be like, nah, we don't do that much maybe. But I think, I mean, it, I, I see it pretty regular. We After 10 days, we put our prescriptions back if that patient has not come pick it up and see a lot of Z-packs, a lot of amoxicillins. Yeah, unfortunately.
0: And that's sort of... Indicating that even pre- even prior to COVID nineteen, there was really poor antimicrobial stewardship. Wait, it's a it's a big problem in this area, and we're in North Carolina. Uh, you're in Tennessee, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Not sure. What's it, What's it like around in your area?
1: When you hear about overprescribing antibiotics and the fear of superbugs and stuff, I don't think our city and my specific pharmacy is an exception to that by any means. I remember specifically this lady came in to get a prescription. It was for Leviquin 750 milligrams, Mm -hmm. uh, which by the way, if you don't work in pharmacy or you don't remember, that's the highest strength that Leviquin comes in. And it's a very, very strong antibiotic that can be used for pneumonia. And I was like, So, are you like, what's going on? How are you feeling? You know, things like that. And she's like, Yeah, I, I went to the doctor and I had this cough and he just gave me the prescription. So, I had a cough and got a five day course of Leviquin 750. So, that's kind of stuck with me. And I'm like, Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: Oh, that like, that makes me uncomfortable because I bet they didn't get counseled on like the potential tendon rupture if they like I, overexert yeah. themselves. <laughs> I try and do that with Leviquin
1: um, and be like, don't lift a lot of heavy stuff up and they're like oh why and I'm like just don't do it because <laughs> I do want to like your tendons could rupture. That's pretty it scares them, but we could go down such a rabbit hole with this. But if you're a patient, you go into a doctor's office and you feel like you have an infection, you're sick, I'm um, an exchange of goods. So they're expecting a prescription in hand when they leave. I'm going to throw out a figure and say maybe 33% of patients that go see a doctor for a routine visit or, or say they have an ailment, they don't need a prescription, but they don't feel like, hey, I'm going to pay my doctor's copay here. I can't leave unless I've got a prescription for something. There might be some pressure to give them
0: something that's not really needed and that
1: doesn't exclude antibiotics
0: i absolutely agree with that i think that your description of the doctor patient interaction as an exchange of goods is a really sad but very accurate perspective because i think that it is that's kind of what it's becoming it shouldn't be that way it shouldn't be people really do they always expect a prescription even if they're not really that sick i I mean mean, I'm, i'm a pharmacy student and i still expect if i go to
2: the doctor's office why i mean i mean yeah i, and it, I didn't and I, just go there to be talked to i mean right I, and
1: that's a good point like it's kind of ingrained even in even in us right like i feel that i could go to the doctor's office and I, if i leave empty-handed there's a, a bit of like oh well there's nothing wrong with me and so maybe that why, might be why more so than over prescribing antibiotics so what i'd re- uh, see quite a bit which is probably a good thing are physical copies of prescriptions for things that are over the counter so doctors are like here you go here's a prescription for Zyrtec. And they walk up and they don't have insurance so we end up walking and showing it to them out there of course they're like well no i want the prescription kind you're like well it's the same thing um and so there i oftentimes get the question of like "Well, why did my doctor prescribe this if it's over the counter it's like well it's for reasons you probably don't understand or it's too long to explain to you that the pro you know maybe the doctor just thought that you needed like it would make you feel better to have this to have actually have a prescription Mm -hmm. some doctors do it so they'll get the actual right thing they want them to get over the counter but um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different reasons they could do it. But I see that quite a bit. And I, I would much prefer that over than here's an actual antibiotic that could lead to
0: resistance when you don't really need it. I had a doctor give me amoxicillin for strep throat without doing a strep test. Oh, man. He didn't even look down your throat. He did, but I, it was just viral pharyngitis or laryngitis. And I was just like, I don't even know why I went anyway. I think I wanted like a day off from work. Just like one day off. Just write me out, please. <laughs> Just the one day. That, see, yeah. I have sound
1: effects on my podcast and that's when I would push the button. It's like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I said, unfortunately, people don't pick up their prescriptions if it's an antibiotic. Maybe it's a good thing. If someone... Mm-hmm has a prescription for antibiotic that they didn't need their body fights it off naturally, or they do homeopathic things to get rid of it, which I do believe in. I think them not picking it up and us calling them, be like, hey, come pick up your antibiotic that was
0: written eight days ago. Maybe that's not a good thing. That's true, too. That is another valid perspective. However, I do think that the portion of those at least are just over prescribed stuff. For sure. Maybe like a quarter of it is just like, well, you're not that sick, but I'll send this in for you anyway. Yeah, it just doesn't make
2: a whole lot of sense for a 24-hour stomach bug to get 21 days of antibiotic. That doesn't always
0: make a whole lot of sense, and then expect people to take it for 21 days, there's yeah. just, there's no way. Well, that's the other thing though. If it is fighting, if you are fighting something bacterial, and they culture it and they give you something for it, you are supposed you're to supposed to definitely finish that but
2: course. You can understand if someone is seven days in and they haven't felt sick for a whole week. And, they're, just, and exactly. they're telling you to go pick up your Medicaid. Why would you ever want to do that? And the patient's probably thinking, blind. you know,
0: I'd rather just stop having diarrhea from the <laughs> antibiotics. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it'd be very interesting to hear a, a, uh,
1: the results of a study. And maybe there's a study out there about this uh, of people who have actually finished their antibiotic courses. One of the, the main counsel points I have on antibiotics are make sure you finish the course of this, even if you start feeling better. That's, you know, that's something that you always say to a person who's taking antibiotics, like, oh, sure. But if you could somehow get the data of how many people actually finish their course, because to me, that's, something that's going to lead to antibiotic resistance more so than overprescribing or people who actually start and don't finish.
0: I could definitely see misuse of antibiotic medication leading to antibiotic resistance (laughs) because if you don't bring them below that threshold that we were talking about earlier, then any resistance that they could develop is going to make them more.
1: Bacteria, they get a little taste for it and like, all right, this is what we need to fight. Mm, Penicillin, (laughs) I love (laughs) that
0: stuff. (laughs) It's like going to the gym. It's like, okay, all right. Which is another note that I'd like to bring up, which is kind of scary. So we already know about things like MERS Versa, which is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and then there's Versa, which is vancomycin-resistant. That's also Staph aureus, right? Mm-hmm. Versa. I don't think that's so big in the United States. Though. But then we've got other things like, which I didn't even know about, CRE, which is, I, and I'm not familiar with this antibiotic, so carbon carbapenem-resistant oh. entero bacteria. Yeah. Yeah, 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 So. Uh, again, not remembering much from ID
1: back in the day, but I do remember the penims, meropenem, carbapenem. those are the big guns. I always remember yeah. those are almost like a last ditch resort. Those who are in ID right now, if you're listening, you're probably, if I'm wrong, I'm so sorry, I, pro- I might be wrong. But I do remember <laughs> when I read about CRE, it freaked me out more than MRSA because carbapenem I always n- remembered from pharmacy school as being this big, huge approach that's going to squash everything.
0: That one's got a fatality rate of 50% and it's almost completely untreatable. It's pretty that scary. That makes sense, yeah. It's, it's intense. But we've also got some studies coming out in 2018 about gonorrhea developing antibiotic resistance. Whoa. Yeah, I've not heard about that. Yeah, that's pretty scary. And it's not like 100 percent resistant yet. I don't know how they were determining. I didn't read the whole study. Sorry. Just the abstract. <laughs> um. But it was beginning to show signs of developing resistance to Rocephin, which is one of their... uh um, yeah, our yeah, last lines of defense against gonorrhea.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, that just I mean, to me, that just goes to show you that it's no pun intended, but no virus is
0: immune to uh, to building up resistance to whatever you're treating it for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever you're treating it with. So, well, the reason that we're talking about bacteria, even though COVID-19 is a virus, is because uh, a question was raised to me by one of my friends and, and colleagues about what is this over sanitization? How is this going to affect the development of, of superbugs? Mm hmm. It was something that I pondered for a while, and we we entertained it, I think, on a previous podcast, but we didn't really delve into it very much. The over-sanitization and the use of like 70% isopropyl or ethyl alcohol to clean surfaces, bacteria is not really going to develop a resistance to alcohol like that like a physical cleaning agent because what's happening is it's like a very physical degradation of the bacterial membrane.
1: It's dehydrating
0: it yeah. Yeah yeah it's dehydrating yeah. it and it would take eons of evolution for the bacteria to develop any kind of resistance. Agreed. Um, and at that point in a million years I don't think that's going to be our biggest concern. Yeah. People will always worry about the 0.01 percent but that will not be the issue. I, I'd like to think about the future but I'm not going to worry
1: about anything that happens a million years from now personally.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so the well, like, over sanitization, like what What we have to do at work is we have to clean every hour. We have to spray everything down and and clean everything. At first I was like, oh man, I wonder if this is going to make bacteria super strong. Luckily it's not, but the overuse of antibiotics potentially could. And we have seen, especially in the beginning weeks of COVID-19, when people were going to the urgent care and hospitals for something that looked a lot like bacterial pneumonia, they were getting antibiotics for it. Mm -hmm. An alarming number of patients were getting antibiotics. This this is kind of terrifying. So there was a study published in the Clinical Infectious Diseases on COVID patients in intensive care, and it stated that while only 8% of COVID patients tested positively for secondary bacterial or fungal infections, a preposterous 72% of patients were administered antibiotics.
1: Oh gosh, shoot me now. That's insane, man. Are you serious? serious? Um, okay. I mean, we, there's a couple of different ways you could look at that, right? Like, um, doctors didn't know what they were dealing with. And so they're going to try it and, and throw antibiotics at it. Um, man, that's, that's a really sobering number. That's, um, there could be a lot of things in play there. The exchange of goods we talked about, someone's feeling not feeling well. So here's an antibiotic, um, as opposed to you might have the virus that's in the news right now, you need to go get tested. And at that time, tests were taking 14 to 20 days to get results back. So it was like a basically walk out of here, go quarantine and do nothing. So that's not what someone's going to like to do. But that I would expect the percentage of antibiotics to be written for a virus to be obviously higher than the actual, you know, you said eight percent, I think was the number of, Mm -hmm. obviously I would expect the percentage to be higher, but not by that much. That's
0: crazy. Yeah. It's ridiculous. ridiculous. And these are ICU ICU patients too, too, being monitored. Oh, I missed that part. They're ICU patients. Oh, oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's actually worse. (laughs) It's, it's, it's abysmal, but it's interestingly though, however, acute settings like family practitioners, and I, I guess this extends to urgent care as well. Antibiotic prescription numbers have gone down. Okay, the whole time when you said the 8% versus the, uh, what was it, 72% versus
1: 72%. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking family practice. You said ICU though. So is ICU patients, yeah. We're talking about family, uh, family. Practices, the numbers going down, that's good, but it's still alarming. Kind of like the Spanish flu going back, that was a novel thing back then. This is a novel virus now. Haven't seen it before. A lot of prescribers didn't know what to do with it, so they're just going to throw an antibiotic at it and see what happens. It's good that the numbers have gone down, but still crazy.
2: See, that's the thing that doesn't really surprise me actually as much, because just from my time in hospital and and observing what hospital pharmacists do, I noticed a lot of patients, if they're in the ICU for more than Three or three days or so, they're almost always given a broad-spectrum antibiotic, hmm. just to you know, just, just to you know, cover your bases for for uh, maybe MRSA or MM, MSSA,
0: you know, or something nosocomial, something yeah, yeah, that or any hospital. any
2: any hospital-acquired infection. So yeah. I think it doesn't shock me that they were all given that because when you're when you have COVID, you're at least going to be in there for 14 days, if not longer. So it doesn't shock me that those numbers are the case, but I would be curious to follow up on that because. You know, if it if it's just in ICU, that doesn't surprise me all that much.
1: Yeah. Hmm. If we're if we're talking about uh, ways that superbugs can develop and not patients not taking their antibiotic courses, leading to the dreaded superbug that we're all not prepared for, uh, in my mind, what you just said. Cal, like I wonder if that, I mean, that seems, that feels like it would be part of it. I've never worked hospital pharmacy. My hospital rotation was in a dark basement, just looking at sheets of paper. I wasn't even like seeing patients. I mean, I'm sure we, I was taught in pharmacy school about getting patients, getting broad spectrum antibiotics for being admitted. I'm sure that was something that we talked about. And then I just like a lot of things in pharmacy school went one ear and right on the other. <laughs> uh, but if you think about developing to a super, like getting um, antibiotic resistance, that doesn't sound super cool to go into a hospital if you're there for more than three days they're just going to give you this huge broad spectrum thing just to quote unquote cover bases
2: probably not great for you but you can understand where the cut co- there is no place on planet earth worse than getting an infection than in a hospital in a hospital room because they try so hard to clean but these major giant hospitals with 12 floors on them there's no way you can cover up everything and you can clean everything on an hour-to-hour basis like maybe you could at a pharmacy and we
0: kind of can
1: <laughs> a little bit easier in the the small uh, the small pharmacy retail pharmacy setting eh? yeah a little bit not a whole lot easier it just seems like it yeah. yeah so you can find me the retail pharmacy podcast is at retail pharmacy r-e-t-e-l-l pharmacy on facebook and twitter you can reach out to me about a patient of the week something that's going on at funny in front of your pharmacy of course the podcast is available on
0: apple podcasts google play and spotify Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. Special thanks to Dr. Mitch Lee of Retail Pharmacy for joining us on this episode, and special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.